a series on worship. Is it working on the, on the screen there? Can you go for it? Yeah, okay, good. We're in a series on worship that we started last week and uh, calling it the five W's of worship. You know, who, what, where, when, and why. Most people who are Christian people, they say, well, of course, we, we worship God. Uh, last week, we tried to ask some questions about, well, do we really worship God? You know, because sometimes we sing on, in our case, Saturday mornings, and we sing a few songs, and we say, yay, we worship God. Well, I mean, if you look into the pages of the scripture, worship has to do with a whole lot more than that, than, you know, singing for 20 minutes. Uh, it's a lot more than that. Uh, so we asked four questions last week. We said, well, where do you, where do you, where are your thoughts? Uh, where do you spend your, your time, your talent, your treasure? If, if you think about those things and answer the questions there, that's likely going to tell you who or what you really are worshiping. We may say and give lip service to God as Christians, but really sometimes we're worshiping something entirely different. And you can fill in the blanks. I mean, it, people all around this world uh, have objects or people uh, of worship. Uh, think about it for a few minutes with me. You know, where do people spend their thoughts, their time, their talent, their treasure? Well, people worship themselves. Uh, people sometimes worship their own, their own bodies. They, they, they put a lot of time, talent, treasure, thoughts just into their own body and nothing else. Uh, people worship things and patterns in this world. They worship wealth. They worship materialism. Uh, they may worship uh, uh, money. They may worship food. Uh, they may worship uh, uh, media and popular culture, uh, music, video games, television, movies. They may worship drugs. They may worship alcohol. They may worship sex. Uh, they may worship uh, power and control. Uh, many, many things. You can see sports. People worship sports. You know, time, talent, treasure, thoughts. That will tell you uh, what your object or person of, of worship is. People worship their, their families. People worship their spouses. Pe people worship their children. Um, so we, we all have these. The question is, do, do they work? Uh, and Jesus had this conversation uh, with this woman uh, a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. We looked at it a little bit last week uh, just to, to revisit it. Um, we, we talked about what worship or what we're worshiping. And from the story, we see that Jesus made this curious trip uh, from uh, down south in Judea uh, up to Galilee, if you put the map on the screen, and he stopped in Samaria. And we see that the text says he had to go through Samaria. And he didn't really have to. If we look at the map, he could have gone up the Jordan River and avoided Samaria altogether. Uh, so some scholars say, well, that had to go through Samaria is because he wanted to have this dialogue with this woman. And we looked at the history uh, last week of the Jews down south in Judea there and the Samaritan, Samaritans up a little north uh, from Judea. That's Samaria's present-day West Bank uh, in Israel and or in the Holy Land. And, um, and we looked at the rift between the Samaritans and the Jews 
and the, the history there and the, the, the view that the Jews had of the Samaritans was not a good view at all. For, so for Jesus to deliberately go into that place and to have a private conversation uh, with, of all people, a woman uh, alone and a Samaritan woman alone, this would have been a very unusual thing. The disciples had gone into the town, probably the town of Sychar, to buy food, uh, presumably, and they would return as the conversation kind of ended with the woman. Uh, but it's a very enlightening conversation, and he, Jesus dialogues with her about worship. And he also gets into her personal life. Uh, he seems to know some, some very personal details about her, and this convinces her that he is the Messiah. And she actually goes and tells people and the people come, and they want Jesus to stay there in Samaria for two more days. So he stays there for two more days, and there are people who, who become followers of Jesus as a result, uh, not only by this woman's testimony, but by their own experience with Jesus. So it's a marvelous little story there. It's only in John chapter 4. You won't find it anywhere else. Uh, and I want to zero in on some parts that, of the conversation that Jesus had with this woman uh, he, he's dialoguing with her about worship, and he says, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And this we looked at a bit last week. Um, the, the, the Samaritans set up this whole worship system and this whole place where they would worship uh, the, 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 this goes way back a thousand years before Jesus even had the conversation. Remember the battle of the Boams, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And, you know, in the north there where Samaria was, they set up this whole different worship system. They injected paganism into Judaism. It was a big mess. Uh, but they had a different place where they would worship. They wouldn't worship in the temple down south in Jerusalem because they didn't live there anymore. Uh, and he says to this Samaritan woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father. That's the who. Neither on this mountain, and that would be Mount Gerizim, where they would worship there, the Samaritans, nor in Jerusalem. Wow. I mean, he's telling this to a Samaritan woman because even the Jews, to them, the sacred place of worship was that temple. Even today. Uh, the, the Jews, especially those who live in that part of the world, they want to go to that, that wall, uh, what they call the Wailing Wall, uh, because that is regarded as the most sacred place in Judaism. And Jesus says a time is coming to this woman where you will worship the Father. It's not, that's not the place, and we'll get into the where uh, probably next week. And then he, he continues the conversation. He says, true worshipers will worship the Father, again there, in spirit and in truth. And I want you to see, I've underlined it, who's being worshipped. It's, it's the Father. Now, she would have had a basic understanding of that. And certainly, Jesus has an understanding of that. He continues, God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. So it's clear, who is the one who is to be worshipped? It's God. It's the Father. Ah, but who is that? And this is the question that we want to answer today. And why should we worship him? 
I mean, we can worship any number of things. You, can, you ask yourself those four questions, your thoughts, your time, your talent, your treasure. That most likely is your object or person or whatever of worship. Okay, well, what about God? If we're to worship God, why? And uh, why, why is, is it something that God commands us to do? And who is he that we should, we should worship him? Um, it, this is the reason. Uh, why we should. Because God and only God has attributes and has qualities about himself that I'll say are worthy of our worship. So to worship, it's an English word. Uh, In the Greek language of the New Testament, you have a word that meant to bow down. And that's commonly used and translated into the English worship. Uh, But the idea of bowing down symbolizes something. It obviously symbolizes worship. You're you're paying homage and respect and honor to whatever you're bowing down to in in that culture. So what are the attributes and what is the essence of God that demands our worship? I mean, here's what the Bible would argue. You can worship anything else but God, whatever that thing is. You go ahead and worship it. But that object or that person or that lifestyle or whatever it is, is going to leave you ultimately dissatisfied. And it could well lead to your own destruction. If you do not find uh, worship, true worship in the Father, in God, and in who he is, you're going to keep running and running and stuffing things in there to worship and none of them is going to satisfy you. I can remember before, uh, before I became a Christian, if you asked me those four questions, where do you spend your time, talent, treasure, and thoughts? As a young, as a teenager, even as a child, or, you know, child, early teen, I would have an immediate answer to that question. There would be no doubt in my mind, and I would say, I worship the gods of baseball. I worship it. And I would not be ashamed to say that. That's sport, okay? So for me, sport was a, was a way of escape. It was a way to get out of the, get out of the house. It was a way to channel uh, emotion and, and anger and frustration. It was all of those things. And so, and so I was into that game, uh, and I played that game in the summer 16 hours a day, maybe, maybe more. In the, in the wintertime, I used to take a baseball and throw it up against the wall of my room and catch it. It really annoyed my family and my, and my parents, okay? I mean, I used to go outside in the winter on a day like today, if it was a little bit warmer, I could make snowballs and throw snowballs at a tree. So at least I could, I could work on, you know, my motion. I wanted to be a pitcher and all that. I said, well, I'll use snowballs in the winter. I'll find a way. Um, in, the, in the summer, I would watch reruns of baseball games. They would, have, they would tape it and play it at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I would get up and watch reruns of baseball games that I had watched the night before just to see if I, could, if I missed anything or if I could learn something. I mean, I absolutely worshipped sports. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, when you do that, ultimately you come up dry 
Uh, and when you need elbow surgery at the age of 18, it's over. <laughs> and I needed elbow surgery at, at the age of 18. I still can't straighten my right arm today, okay? Because there's bone chips and stuff hanging around in there. Um, and that changed things. And I had to, of course, find a new object of worship. And I was all over the place uh, until, until God became my object of worship, you see. And whatever that thing is, it's going to lead you down a path of frustration because it does not have the qualities that God has. And these are qualities that are the only qualities that are worthy of our worship. So I'm going to give you eight this morning. Eight, if you can, eight. Eight's like that. If you can hold on and, and look at these eight qualities of God, and these are just eight of them. There are, uh, there are uh, dozens of them that you can identify in the scripture. I'm going to give you eight of them and divide them up into two little categories for you, all right? Uh, the first section is what we can call the natural qualities of God. I'll give you five of those. And these are qualities that have to do with God and his, his essence as it relates to, to nature and time. They're not moral qualities per se. They're, they're more what we can call natural qualities of God. We'll just look at them one after the other and think about them for a little bit. Uh, first, first and foremost, a God is eternal. We'll use that word. That's a, an English word. Uh, so Psalm chapter 90, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist writes this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world before that, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is a statement about the eternal quality of God. Now, we don't, we don't really think about that too often, but we should, because it's worthy of worship. E it, to be eternal means the thing has no beginning, it has no middle, it has no end, it's eternal. So if, if God is eternal, he exists independent of time, there's no need of time, he created time. We looked at it on New Year's Eve. He's inside and outside of time if he wants to be all the time. Uh, he is not bound by time. He is eternal. Now, we don't, we don't relate to that uh, too often because most of our lives we spend in, in, the, in the, the finite world. You know, we, we know about things begin and things have an end. Um, and, and our lives have a beginning and our lives, at least on this earth, have an end. Do you know when we start thinking about eternity or even infinity, which means the beginning and no ending, do you know when we start thinking about it is when, when we start getting older and when the, when, when the whole thing of, hey, my life on this earth is going to come to an end someday, then we start thinking about these things. Uh, you'll never have a more attentive audience about God and the things of God than at someone's funeral. Trust me, I've done many of them, and you never have a more attentive audience because people are captivated all of a sudden by eternity. Well, God is eternal. And because God is eternal, 
the way that we, you know, we're rushing, we're, we've got to do this, we've got this time constraint, we don't have enough time in the day. I mean, I look at some of you, many of you are parents in this room, and you probably wish you just had one more hour in the day. Just give me one more hour and I can, I can make it happen, you know, and you only get 24. Well, in God's view, like, he, he's not bound by that stuff. And sometimes when you, when you worship God and you truly, truly, hey, my, thought, my thoughts, my time, my talent, my treasure, it's about God first and foremost. I'm telling you, the way that you're going to understand time and the way that you're going to go through your day and the amount of time you will seemingly gain when you start to worship God who is eternal, you'll be surprised. You'll be shocked. I mean, uh, uh, a tip for you. Um, I'm going to say, when you pray, right? I know some of you, you probably say, well, when I pray, I don't pray too often, Pastor. Well, you know, you, you probably need to develop that discipline. When you pray, uh, try, try it this way. Try getting up super, super early in the morning, whatever super early is for you, and spend your, and spend your time with God as, as early as you possibly can. You will probably be shocked at how your time runs that day. You probably be where did all, where did I get all this time? How how come it doesn't seem as hectic? How come it doesn't seem as crazy as it does other days? Well, this is because your first priority, your first your first series of thoughts was on the one who is eternal, and he holds eternity in his hands. And we get to experience that in our own personal lives. Because the one who is eternal comes to live within the believer. And the believer can even face the grave and experience God even after the grave. With confidence and with peace, they can even pass into eternity and say, you know what? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not gone. I'm just going to another place. Because God, God is eternal. Tell me who, who is like that. Right? Uh, so if God is eternal and if God is, is not bound by time or, or, uh, and he's inside and out of time, it would suggest a number of other characteristics. It would suggest that God is, and I'll give you some omnis here, that he's omnipresent. This means to be present everywhere. So uh, the psalmist, uh, David, has a beautiful, beautiful psalm, Psalm 139, where he talks about some of these qualities of God. In verses 7 to 12, he says it this way, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. The word there is Sheol. It's the place of the dead in the Old Testament. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The, the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. What's he doing? He's saying, my God is everywhere all the time. I can't run from him. I can't escape from him. When I feel alone, when I feel isolated, when it's dark outside, it's bright to him because he's everywhere all the time. He's omnipresent. And this means 
every, all of God is everywhere all the time. So God is not like the blob. Any of you seen that old 1950s movie, The Blob? Do you know what The Blob is? So, you know, you got this, this goo, and it just keeps going, and it spreads, you know, across the whole city, and it kind of consumes everything in its path. It's The Blob. It's all spread out like a big, big jello. Well, God's not like that. All of God is everywhere all the time. He's, every, he's, in, he's in this room. He, he's everywhere you go. It doesn't mean that God is the, the stuff. He's not the chairs. He's not the table. He's not the trees. He's not the sun. Okay, he created all of this. And all of God is present everywhere all the time. You say that's impossible. Well, this is, this is who God is as revealed in the scripture. And this is worthy of worship because it means wherever you go, whatever you've experienced, God was there. You say, well, I don't know if I like that because these things happened to me. And if God was there, why didn't God do anything about that? Well, we'll get to that in a few minutes. That has to do with his moral qualities and why that is. But it, it certainly means that whatever you went through there, whatever the experience was, it was a very, very traumatic or, you know, someone did something to you, you experienced something terrible. Let me tell you, God was there and God knows what happened. And it's not only because God is omnipresent, it's the next quality. God is omniscient. So this means that he has all knowledge. So if there's any knowledge to know, God knows it. He knows everything. So he's everywhere all the time. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by space. He's everywhere all the time. All of him is everywhere all the time. He created time. And he knows everything. So David says it in the same psalm. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and you know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You know, before I even think, you know what I'm thinking about. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar in all my ways, with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, O oh Lord, know it completely. Oh, boy. Uh, before it's even on my tongue, you hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful to me, too lofty for me to attain. So David is saying, he, he, God knows everything about me. He even knows what I think before I say it. He knows everything. He's everywhere. He created everything. I mean, these are, these are characteristics worthy of worship. And if God knows everything, then God knows what's going on in your life. He knows what you're facing uh, he was there when whatever happened to you happened to you, and it suggests the next quality, God is omnipotent. So he's, he's all-powerful. So he has all power. So time is not an issue for him. Space is not an issue for him. Circumstance is not an issue for him. Knowledge is not an issue for him. He is omnipotent. So, so uh, uh, Jeremiah, the major prophet, says this. Um, oh, I put the wrong verse there. Let me look it up for you. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 32 and, um, and 17. Just give me a second to find it. Those of you listening online, be patient with me. Jeremiah 32 and 17. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens 
and you have made the earth with your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. So he's saying circumstance is nothing for him. He created everything, and he has all power. I don't know what you're, you're facing or you have faced, but you can make it through the day with the power of God. I often find myself praying, God, whatever I'm going to face today, I know that you can get me through the day because you're all powerful. If you created everything, it, I mean, look at that picture. That's a real picture of a guy looking up at the, at the heavens. I mean, look how vast that is. If God created everything, then surely God has the ability to get me through the day. He may not take away everything that I want him to take away. He may not stop everything from happening that I want stopped. You know, I didn't want the snow to come today. <laughs> well, God is all powerful. He could make it stop if he wants to make it stop. Uh, he has that ability. He has that power. He can do anything. Nothing is too difficult for him. And that should give you encouragement. It shouldn't, it shouldn't frustrate you. Some people say, well, if God is all-powerful, how come he didn't do this for me? How come he didn't stop this from happening? That has to do with some of his moral characteristics, again, which we'll get into in a second. But the way we're supposed to look at it is, I can do what needs to be done today because God is all-powerful and he's with me. Whatever I'm facing, I know at the end of the day, God is going to get me through. Whatever the challenge, whatever is coming, I know that he can get me through. And you, you have to take these, these characteristics and balance them with the moral ones of God. We'll do one more in the natural, and this is that God is immutable. I'm using fancy theological terms. All that means is God does not change. His nature, his character does not change. So Malachi chapter 3 uh, and verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13 verses 7 and 8 Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of the, their way of life and imitate their faith. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what he's saying there, the author of Hebrews, you can live the way that these people lived. And he, he had just finished talking about all these great men and women of faith. And he said, you remember those people. You consider their outcome. You imitate their faith. You can live like them because it's the same Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. This does not mean, however, uh, that God doesn't, uh, the argument is told, doesn't change his mind. Because we see plenty of examples in the scripture where God is going to do something and then there's a different outcome because, you know, there's repentance that takes place, there's a change in, uh, in people or in a nation, and God relents from something or he changes the outcome. This doesn't mean that God has changed. It's all consistent with his character, all consistent with his nature. Uh, and this is a very calming thing because everything is changing around us all the time is change, 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 and we have to also be changed. I mean, God wants us changed, and he wants to change us, and this is, this is hard, and change is difficult, and okay, here comes another change. Here comes another circumstance in my life. Oh, no, okay, now, I, now I've lost my, my job, and now I've got to go and find another one, and oh, now there's sickness that has come, and now there's another change, and there's all this change. Well, God, he's immutable, you see. He never changes. 
James says that he doesn't change like shifting shadows. Uh, he'll never rip you off. He'll never deceive you. He'll never steal from you. He'll never try and cut your legs out from under you. You know, he is reliable. Uh, when we talk about God as a rock and a tower, that's the idea. We can count on him because he never changes. He never goes to sleep. Uh, he never fails. He never needs batteries. He doesn't need to be recharged. Uh, you know, he doesn't need a new operating system. Uh, you know, he, he's not Apple. <laughs> you know, he never changes. Never, never changes. Wow, that's that should be really encouraging to us because things are changing all the time. And those are just some of the natural qualities of God that make him worthy of worship. Well, there's also, and I'll just, I'll just give you three, what we can call moral or personal qualities of God. It's not just how he operates in time and space. Um, it's, it's, there are moral, moral characteristics and personal characteristics of God that we see in the scripture. So um, in, in 1 Peter, for example, we see that God is holy. And if you look in the scripture, really all of the characteristics of God are, are kind of, uh, it, holiness is kind of at the center and everything else is like spikes on a wheel. Um, and we see uh, Peter quotes Leviticus there and he says, just as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all you do. For it's written again in Leviticus, be holy because I am holy. It means to be completely set apart. It means to be completely without sin. It means to be completely without uh, um, uh, defect or, or error or, I mean, God is completely holy. There isn't one single ounce of sin in God. Uh, John says God is light and in him there is no darkness. Um, he's not an anti-hero, you know, he's not Batman who has kind of a good side and a dark side, you know, he's not... He's not Kylo Ren. I mean, he's, he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He is completely holy and without, without sin, without failure, without error. He is completely holy, and he calls us to imitate him and to live a life that's set apart and a life that is holy. Now, if you think about it, if, you were, if you're dealing with, with God who is, who is eternal and who is unchanging, and who is all-powerful, and all-knowing, and all-present, and he's holy, then you start to realize, okay, how does God, therefore, interact with us with that holiness as part of the picture? Well, not only is God holy, God is personal, and he's very personal. When we see God presented in the Bible, it, he is community, and we've talked about this before. His very essence, his very nature is personal and is community. Uh, uh, Paul would talk about um, this a little bit in 2 Corinthians 1. It's all over the place in the New Testament, really, and you can even see it in the Old Testament. God exists in community. We call this the Trinity today. Uh, this is the idea that God is one what, but he's three who's. He's, he's God the Father, he's God the Son, and he's God the Holy Spirit. These three persons are, are co-equal and yet distinct. And we see that, that God interacts with people 
through all three persons of the Trinity. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. In Christ. That suggests a personal relationship with Christ where your identity changes. God has made us stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. The word anointed is the same root word for Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us, and he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You have God the Father, you have God the Son, you have God the Holy Spirit, all there interacting with people, interacting with the church, the community of faith. Man, that should give us a huge encouragement. That's very, very hands-on, very personal, this God is. He's holy, and yet he interacts with us, even though we're not particularly holy. Wow, that's pretty, that's, that's, that's worthy of worship. And finally, God is sovereign. He's sovereign. This means that he's the king. He does what he wants. And no one can push him around. And no one can tell him, you've got to do it this way, my way. You have to, you have to act in my life in a certain way. And it's got to be that way. Or it's the highway. Well, God won't have it your way. He'll always have it his way because he's sovereign. He's in control. He's the king. Um, I'm, I'm sure he, he won't mind me saying this, but Simon, Simon is, is here today, and I went and visited his wife uh, this week. We went and visited and, and spent some great time with her. And Simon and Alicia have, in my view, a perspective on worship that is, that is phenomenal. And even with you know, the challenges that they're facing, um, they phrase it kind of like this. You know, God is the king, and he can do what he wants. Uh, he, he's not at our beck and call. Um, we can't demand of him to do this or to do this. He, he is the king, and we worship him, and he can do what he wants to do. This is a very, very healthy perspective on worship because nowadays we, we have pushed the sovereignty of God aside, and now we have, we have preaching and we have books and we have all this stuff that will tell us the secret sauce to get God to do what we want him to do. So if we want to be wealthy, well, you know, there's a series of prayers that you can pray. And there's a series of scriptures that you can quote back to God. And if you do it this way and you claim it this way and if you say it that way, then you will be wealthy because God is obligated uh, to make you wealthy because of the way that you've interacted with him. Can I just tell you? That totally dis, it totally disavows the sovereignty of God. It takes his sovereignty and it throws his sovereignty out the window. Unless, of course, his sovereignty is subject to your sovereignty. <laughs> but it's not. See, God has no need of us, but God chooses to interact with us. And God chooses to have relationship with us, and God chooses to engage with us, and God chooses to save us because he loves us. But God is sovereign. And so when you go through those, those moments in life and those circumstances and those things that happen to you, you say, where was God? Why didn't God do something? Um, because God is holy. Because God is sovereign, because God is all-powerful, because God is unchanging, because God is present everywhere all the time and knows everything, 
God will do something. From these characteristics, and if you look at the world, you can derive the reality that God is obliged now to do something with this world. His holiness demands judgment on evil. His holiness demands that those things that have happened to you, those circumstances that have happened, all those things, those things are going to change. Uh, one day, there's not going to be the, the, the present uh, system as we know it. Uh, read the book of Revelation and you'll see there is, a, there is a change that is going to happen and God is going to bring about that change in his own time. You see, because he is sovereign, he's the king, he does what he wants to do and no one, no one, especially not his creation, can push him around. I have seen so many people, uh, especially when it comes to healing, who, who think that, well, you know, if I pray this way and I pray that way and I go and visit this, this supposed healer and if I go and pay this money as seed money to this healer and if I go and send them this handkerchief and if I go and do this and do that, then God is going to heal me because God has to. No, he does not have to. He is not obliged to do anything for us because he's the king. And I know that that's really, really hard to hear for people, but we better get real with that and get sober with that because God can't be pushed around. The amazing thing, however, is that God shows us glimpses of what is to come. He shows us almost like a preview, you know, like the trailers that they play on this movie screen. Before you go and see a movie, they give you 15 minutes of trailers, right? They tell you this movie's coming out in a year. You know, and you, everybody's waiting, and they're saying, oh, I can't wait to see such and such a movie. It's coming out in a year, a year, and we wait in anticipation. I remember the, the Star Wars movie from a couple of years ago. They started playing the trailer for this movie at least a year in advance, and people couldn't wait. I mean, they're like, I can't wait to see. I'll wait forever to see, you know, what's Luke Skywalker going to say, and he said nothing in that movie. He just, he, it ended with Luke Skywalker. Everyone was waiting, 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 and you could see the new one, and you could see what he says, right? And they keep you waiting in anticipation. Well, when God moves in supernatural ways, and some of you have experienced it, it's like that trailer. It's like that movie trailer. He's showing us a piece, a little glimpse of what is going to come when he cleans up everything here. But he's in charge of that, and he can't be pushed around when it comes to that. And so we can try, and we can try and manipulate God and make God do what we think he's supposed to do for us. But every single time, he will prove to you that he's sovereign and that he's the king and that he can't be pushed around and he won't be pushed around. And he'll let you endure whatever circumstance sometimes, whether you like it or whether you don't like it, and yet you're called to worship him. I love the passage in the book of Job, where Job, it happens a few times to him, and he, he, it, the, the story starts and he loses everything that he has. I mean, he loses, the only thing he doesn't lose is his life and his wife. <laughs> and probably there were times where he wished he lost his wife, because his wife wasn't too nice to him. You know, his wife told him, What's wrong with you? you? You need to curse God and you need to die. That's what you need to do, Job. Look what God did to you. He took away 
everything except you're, you're still creeping by a thread, even though your body's all messed up and you, you know, you got sores all over the place, you got no more money, all your children are dead, all your livestock, everything is ruined. You should curse God and you should die. That's his wife. Okay, not very encouraging. He's got these friends who give him all this bad advice, you know. And what does Job do? As soon as he loses everything, he worships God. When he loses everything, he, worships, he doesn't even say that he sings. He worships God in, in his time of suffering and in his time of loss. And he comes to a place and he says, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Yet will I worship him. No, come what may, even the grave, I will still worship God. I won't listen to my, my wife on this one, right? Because he had a very clear understanding that you don't worship God for what you get. You worship God for who he is. And when you do that, you find that things just start to come. But he's, he's the king. And, uh, and Paul explains this to the, the Athenians in very, very direct language. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, right? He's omnipotent. He made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Lord, it's a, a term about his sovereignty. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by human hands. Okay, he, do, he doesn't need to live in a temple. I mean, all of that that you see in the Old Testament is a temporary thing. He does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. I mean, he's the king. Rather, he gives everyone life and he gives everyone breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations uh, that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He's sovereign. He's in charge. God did this for a reason, however, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And he quotes some of the pagan poets of the day even, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. That's a pagan poet. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Even with all those powerful characteristics, uh, even with his holiness and his moral qualities, he is sovereign and he, at the end of the day, it's his show. And he is worthy. There's no one who compares to that. You tell me one other whatever person, religion, what you tell me one that compares to those characteristics. You won't find any. And those are just a, that's just a sampling of who God is. There are, there are books that have been written about this. You can find scores and scores of characteristics of the attribute of God. And in heaven... Uh, we will worship him and understand who he is truly. What we understand of God now is what is revealed to us in the scripture. We can intuit a little bit by looking around at creation, but we look into the revelation of scripture and we say, well, this is who God is. When we meet God face to face, we will see him as he truly is. We won't even need the scripture anymore. We'll be in front of him face to face and experience him. And he's eternal. Like you're never going to get bored of God. He's got no beginning, no middle, no ending. 
He's eternal. You're never going to get bored. Some people think they say, well, in heaven, you're going to sit there on a harp and strum a harp all day, you know, and God's got this long beard or whatever. Is that what he- I don't, I'm not interested in heaven if that's what heaven is. Listen, if you're a Christ follower in this room and you, you experience God in that place when you leave this world, this is an eternal God you're talking about. This is the all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, unchanging, holy a personal God who's sovereign, uh, who's light, who's filled with grace and mercy and love and compassion, who created you in his image. I mean, you're going to experience God personally, face-to-face, without hindrance for all eternity. You tell me who compares to this God. I say no one compares to him. And he is worthy of our worship. I tell you, you can try and stuff anything you want in there. You try it out, and you come and tell me if it's better than God. You tell me if whatever, I don't care what you find, and you come and you tell me, and you, can, you convince me this is better than God. I'm telling you it's better, Pastor. You're not going to find one thing because they're never going to outlast the king. He's the one who made that fury that we see outside. You know, he snapped his little finger and the, and the temperature dropped like a rock from 12 degrees to minus 10 overnight, and everyone is freaked out. Not God. He snapped his little finger, and he made it happen. Why? I have no clue why. <laughs> but, but he is the king, and he is in control, and we all recognize, ah, yes, winter's, winter's fury has come. And it's like, even if you're an atheist, you, you bow down before old man winter today every time you pick up that shovel you're bowing down and you're acknowledging there's something greater than me and I'm shoveling it right now. He's the king. He is all powerful and he is in control. He is worthy of our worship. You take the time to truly uh, put your time, your talent, your treasure, your thoughts into God and you will never, you will never go 